be inspired by classics texts in discussion with fellow engaged readers. Be transformed through unique lifelong learning seminars. This July, read deeply with summer classics at St. John's College, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Visit sjc.edu slash summerclassics. Hey, it's Violet. Before we dive into today's show, I've got a quick favor to ask. We have a survey up on our website, harpers.org survey. Would you please take it? It shouldn't take more than five minutes to complete. As we approach five years of the podcast, we have been discussing ways to make the show even better. That's why it's crucial we hear from you. The survey's up at harpers.org survey. Thank you in advance for lending your voice. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the May issue, Michael W. Clune offers a personal history of panic attacks and a lucid description of the experience. For anyone who's experienced a panic attack, the latter is quite an achievement. These liminal, disorienting episodes are terrifying. Even thinking about a panic attack can bring one on. Yet Clune's prose is expressive and clear, and sometimes darkly comic. That he came of age before the internet means that his quest to understand panic attacks was nonlinear and extremely confusing. Clune's memoir also defies the typical narratives around the neurodivergent. I spoke with Clune about his insightful and eloquent writing about this ephemeral mental state. In some ways, this piece feels like a Kunstler roman, which is, you know, tracking your coming of age as a writer. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned in passing that you didn't know any adults in the town where you grew up who read, and your visit to the library is kind of surreal. But your panic mm -hmm. attacks led you to research the condition and to reading creative work, too. I mean, do you feel like this condition is responsible in some way for your becoming a writer? Um, I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. It's, it's definitely, I, I feel like it precipitated me into that path. I mean, I was always interested in reading. I was always interested in writing, but I feel that for me, at least the importance of some kind of crisis or alienation or some sort of like problem about the world that I didn't know how to talk about with my friends or with my family members and that reading literature at that age when I was 15 gave me a vocabulary to um, to try to describe what was happening with me. And it's and it's it's kind of funny because it happened largely because of the limitations of the library that I that I sort <laughs> of visited where I was like mm -hmm. trying to find like, you know, medical or psychological information about panic attacks. Or panic attack prevention, the one right. subject that had no books. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, it was just, just this really limited collection. And, you know, I was reading about financial panics and trying to like, you know, make leaps to try to relate them to what I was going through. Um, and then I was just sort of frustrated and started, you know, picked up this book that this rare adult reader in the library had left about, you know, on, on Oscar Wilde's plays. And it just kind of blew me away. It was like this... Um, I read it or, or potentially misread it, but it was a productive reading for me 
as um, this kind of occult language to describe this experience of panic that I didn't really know that felt so intense and strange and terrifying, but also like fascinating. It gave me like a, a, a use for literature as something like that was really sort of existential and crucial um, as opposed to entertaining. Mm. So I wanted to talk about dissociation for a bit because dissociation mm. is sometimes but not always related to anxiety, you know, like panic attacks. Um, and to use a very dumb, very dumb uh, metaphor to explain this, it's sort of like your mind is driving down the highway. It's driving very fast and then the weather gets bad and then your mind pulls over to the side of the road because it's dangerous and your mind can't see. And then you notice I'm not driving anymore. I, yeah. My body's not moving through time. I'm not seeing the things that I normally see because I'm driving all the time. And right. it's terrifying. Um, it's, it's totally disorienting and scary. And, you know, this makes everything, experiencing dissociation makes everything worse because now you feel disembodied and fucked up. Um, <laughs> so I have to, you know, how does this experience relate to your writing? I mean, is it an embodied experience for you? Are you conscious of how you experience things in your body when you write metaphor or is writing its own more controlled form of dissociating? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's true. And actually, one of the things that I've gotten really interested in recently as part of, you know, working on this material um, is thinking about inspiration and how different artists and writers have thought about inspiration, which is very often described like there's this amazing Sylvia Plath poem called Poppies in October, yeah. where she is looking at these at these poppies and finds herself comparing them to the blood of, a, of a, a, a pouring out of a woman who's dying, you know, on an ambulance. And then she has this moment of shock, like, what am I that I'm having these thoughts? What am I that these images are coming to rest in me? And it's sort of like the discovery that she's a poet is happening at the moment where she's experiencing that disassociation, that sense mm. that my perceptions are somehow not mine. I can't own them. I feel like alienated from them. But that's also the recognition hey, of like, hey, this is what being a poet means. Um, and when I read that, I really identified with it. And I feel like it sort of speaks to what your question is getting at, which is the sense that in writing, you know, it's coming from a place that's different than the the place I'm I'm coming from when I'm, to use your metaphor, driving down the road, right? Mm. Or or engage in my normal activities or normal social relations, that there's sort of a shift in gears and all of a sudden there's a kind of world of perception that on the one hand, it feels super vivid. It's like, it doesn't have habits attached to it. It doesn't have the dullness of familiarity attached to it. So it's like very vivid and intense as if it's been ripped out of all the ordinary contexts of my life. And, mm. and so, yeah, and it feels like panicked perception feels very much like the kind of perception I'm trying to access as a writer when I'm trying to describe the world, not as I ordinarily see it, but from a perspective in which something like its naked reality becomes visible. So 
like in your memoir, Whiteout, or the last piece you wrote for us, which is about hypnagogia, you have this amazing way of describing these liminal moments, these liminal points of consciousness, uh, and, or unconsciousness in the case of sleep, maybe both, uh, question mark, <laughs> science unsure yet. Um, but as you wrote in the piece, uh, thinking about panic can turn into panic, just like financial panics. Um, and a lot of people deal with these things uh, or, you know, kind of have a distance relationship to their bodies and memories of these experiences. So what is your process for reliving those moments? Yeah, so, um, and, and, and first of all, the, part of the reason I'm drawn to those kinds of experiences, hypnagogia or panic, uh, or addiction, um, it, it's partly because um, I'm, I'm really interested in trying to describe experience as it presents itself before I've got concepts to attach it to. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if it, when that happens, that's when writing is really, for me, learning something about experience and about the world. And those states, because when you're in them, you, you find yourself adrift. You find yourself saying like with a panic attack, like I actually don't know, is this a heart attack? Like what, what's happening to yeah. me? And so um, finding, you know, language and metaphors that are really true to that experience, I feel like that's, that's one of the places where writing can, you know, to me, tell the truth about experience before it's sort of been blurred or corrupted by the concepts and images I ordinarily use to, in a protective way to, to, to place myself at a distance from those experiences. And so your question about how I get back into them is interesting because, and I hear that you, what you said earlier about dissociation, I think comes into play because it's as if, let's take addiction, for example, like um, one of the things that recovery teaches you is to sort of, you know, avoid triggers, right? Avoid mm -hmm. dwelling on the addictive object or whatever, because you're going to want to, you know, want to do it, right? I mean, you're, mm -hmm. you, you end up uh, activating that whole system of thought that leads to engaging in the behavior that one is trying to avoid. But what, what my experience has always been is that when I'm writing, whether it's about panic or whether it's about addiction or hypnagogy or whatever the case may be, I feel like I'm able to enter into it without fear. Like it feels like I'm reconstructing it. I'm really back in that space. I'm writing about the first time I did heroin, for example, but I'm not wanting to do it again. It's like there's, there's, there's some other kind of perception that's been activated or some other kind of consciousness or cognition where I'm able to very carefully enter back into that experience, but in which th those intense emotional reactions are sort of bracketed um, mm. or suspended. I always feel weird about describing writing or, or reading as therapeutic, but there's, there's definitely a dimension for me uh, uh, about sort of transmuting those materials through writing into something that um, has lost some of its, I don't know, some of its mastery over me or some of its dominance over me. Well, you know, related to this question of style and mastery um i'm interested in your teenage aversion to certain words you know like 
in a very funny scene, you dramatize the intensity of your reaction to the word diabetes, right? <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you still find when you write that there are certain words or phrases that just elicit an intense bodily reaction or a repulsion? Oh, or, yeah. Or, or conversely, an intense attraction. Like there's, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And diabetes, I mean, that, that one, so when I was like eight, I read this book, it was in this book, the series called the great brain series. It was like this like kid detective and in it, there's this like horrifying, this is how I remember it. Maybe it's actually different, but I remember it like the, the story's going along and his friend suddenly gets very thirsty and he gets thirstier and thirstier. And then he goes to the doctor. He finds out he has diabetes and then he dies. <laughs> right? Oh, like, that's why you're worried about the dry mouth. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. The totally. Essay. Okay. totally. So that, that was like, diabetes was like this, like, I mean, seriously, it was like years, even like five or six years ago, I was giving a talk somewhere and I was sitting down for dinner. I was in a good mood. And this guy was like talking to me. He's like, Oh, I'm, you know, I was like, how have you been? And he's like, Oh, the last couple of years have been kind of difficult. I, I did get diagnosed with diabetes. And, and he says that. And I'm like, I get up and leave and go have a panic attack in the bathroom. So it's like, it's oh like, my God. Yeah, it's still a weird, I, I've sort of gotten over it. I mean, it's just this, it's just, it's, it's this weird phobia. Um, the word membrane was like that for me for a while. I, I'm mm -hmm. not sure why it, it elicited, it no longer does it. Um, but yeah, I feel like uh, certain words have this kind of power. Um, usually I experience it more as a, as, as a versive, uh, or at least it's more memorable. Just I feel like pain is often more memorable than pleasure. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, definitely when I'm writing, there's also lots of words that I'll find myself, you know, I'll, I'll have to go back and realize like, oh, I used, you know, this this one word, like, you know, penultimate, which is a word I feel like a lot of people like. And I, I, mm -hmm. I was writing something, I realized I used that word like eight times. And I'm like, penultimate's a great word. It should never appear, you know, eight times <laughs> in any piece of writing. Yeah, it ceases to be penultimate. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, you. I mean, do you still, you know, you've carried over some of the, the aversions, let's say. But have you sort of, if you continued your teenage mechanisms for delaying or offsetting panic, because you know, you you talk about reading, and there's this great part where you write, "quote words need a voice." The voice they use when you read is your voice. It's the voice your thoughts talk in. So if you give the voice to your book, the thoughts have no voice. They have to wait for the paragraphs to end. Which is such an amazing way to describe <laughs> avoiding your <laughs> internal monologue when you know that it's, it's a bad actor. And then other times it's you're just like not looking at something for too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely. Like reading, I've, I've often felt... You know, if I'm in a in an anxiety producing situation or if I'm like waiting for something, um, reading is a really fascinating way of like yeah, suspending myself in someone else's consciousness and someone else and, and suspending my language in someone else's language so that um, it's almost like I, I kind of drown myself. It's like a very effective for me, at least way of escaping myself for a while is to um immerse myself in reading and and um yeah and so it's often like i'll i'll be anxious about something and i'll, I'll pick up a novel and be sort of like you know furiously reading it until i mm. settle into that that pace that i found like is is just fast enough to where um it's able to keep my own thoughts from popping up uh uh too frequently mm. um 
So that's, yeah, that's, that's definitely, and in terms of the, the, the not looking, and this is kind of interesting. So this piece that I wrote is, which is a memoir piece about my actual experience with a panic attack. It's part of this larger project that I'm actually writing as a novel because I want to explore some of the implications of what panic feels like and what it reveals about one's mind and one's consciousness in ways that are almost science fictional or more, or more fictionalized. Mm. Um, because I feel like with, with panic, it, it gives me a sense that the world is very different than I ordinarily think it is. And that I'm very different than I ordinarily think it is. And one of the, one of the kinds of thoughts that I would have with panic attacks was that if I let my gaze rest too long on a certain object, I would get like stuck in the object. I mean, it, mm. it's, it's, a, it's one of these weird perceptions and thoughts that's a kind of reaction to the way one's body is feeling, but it feels real. I know like sort of like consciously and rationally that right, that's not going to happen. What does that mean? You know, to get stuck in that, but that's how it felt. And so I would move and dart my eyes around to avoid sort of getting the, the magnetic pull of the object world and to keep my consciousness sort of like floating above that world. Um, and that's still something I'll do. Like I, I have, I, I really don't have panic attacks very often um, these days. It's probably been maybe once every five or six years, something will trigger it. But when I am feeling that way, I, I, I will still put into practice that kind of like moving my my eyes around. And I, it's kind of interesting. I'd be curious to know if other people who suffer from panic attacks or have experience with that kind of anxiety, if that's something they do mm -hmm. also, whether it's it's just this weird idiosyncratic thing. Yeah, I mean... Uh, you know, speaking of other writers, I mean, you know, are there other writers or memoirists or other storytellers, you know, uh, you know, perhaps working in fiction whose style enables them to inhabit and depict uncomfortable physical experiences as well? Or that you or do you sort of avoid that? <laughs> That's that that variety of writing. No, no, I'm, I'm totally into that kind of writing. Um I feel like uh, Samuel Beckett is one for me that's really mm -hmm. like in Molloy and that in that trilogy, it's this kind of unbelievable, um, you know, capacity to enter into the the awkward, the frustrated, the confused, the anxious. Um, and I actually learned there was there was something I think it was an article that came out a few years ago that he he actually suffered from panic attacks when he was writing. Um, Malloy and and I think when he was writing Godot and, and a lot of that other stuff. Um, so I didn't know that originally, but 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 that made a lot of sense to me. And then there's a lot of cosmic horror writers like Octavia Butler or mm. H.P. Lovecraft, who are who I feel like are also extremely good at articulating extreme or like strange bodily states. One of the funniest parts of this memoir to me at least, is when you go to the emergency room and the doctor tells you, yeah, just breathe into a bag. And your dad's like, oh, the bag cures panic attacks. <laughs> Which is such a dad thing to say. It's, it's very funny. And then, of course, the doctor gets paged and he immediately leaves and there's no further explanation given. You're, you're just left to your uh, own devices, which is... Not great to do to a child, but it's also, that's such a pre-internet thing to do, you know, because right now the internet is overrun with the neurodivergent, 
maybe it's not so much normalized as memified, but it's become part of the space of the internet in this really interesting way. What do you make of the fact that anxiety has come into the mainstream that, you know, when I was growing up, it was never part of it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. And it's, it's, um, I think of it two different ways. Like, I think of it as, as sort of like as a person, then I think of it as a writer, right? As a, as a writer, I think that, and, and just as a writer, I think there was something fortunate about not immediately having the internet to put my experiences into a kind of box, right? And to say, this is what's happening, you know, and, and, and all of that stuff. And so the experience unfolded in a way where it was definitely unpleasant and uncomfortable, but it was also, you know, it was, it was this, a, a, a way to learn things about my mind and about, you know, my, my reactions to things and about getting a perspective from outside of my ordinary experience that I feel like was valuable. Whereas today, yeah, you type into the internet and you can instantly find um, a, a kind of diagnosis and, and, and put it in that box. On the other hand, I also feel that as someone who's anxious and who's had hypochondria in the past, the internet can also just be like this, like, amazing Pandora's box of, yeah. um, you know, of, of like, okay, uh, you know, like, like here's a symptom, like, and, and here are these horrible diseases come parading out, right. You know, mm -hmm. um, or, or these people talking about these, these intense experiences, but in terms of like the ubiquity of anxiety and also depression in our culture now, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it, you know, I think it's a health crisis. Like I'm a, I'm a professor mm -hmm. and I, and, you know, and it's not just true for me and my students, it's true everywhere I go and talk to professors, they're having the same experience, which is that anxiety and depression are at levels among young people, especially that are like, seem unprecedented, you know? I mean, it just seems like people are much more anxious. And so, yeah, I feel like there weren't that many people, none of my peers, for example, when I was in high school, had those, or at least talked about those experiences. Whereas I feel like now, um, I mean, I don't want to say everyone's having them, but a, a large majority, or I, I would I would think almost a majority of of young people are having some kinds of experiences with these like uh, uh, you know sort of extreme states. Yeah, you know, you say you know this is pre-internet. You couldn't just type in your symptoms to the search bar and be delivered into this immediate understanding. Your understanding unfolded across you know part of part of the piece is how this how your understanding of it unfolded, which is really fascinating. Um, and again, a, an experience that's not always explored, just sort of taken for granted. Um, but yeah. you have this you have this kind of uh, Jungian moment where you're with Lisa in the library and she's she's talking about the god Pan. And that, <laughs> you know, of all yeah. things, you know, he's also the god of theatrical criticism. <laughs> So do you feel like uh, it would be great to hear you talk about that unfolding as well as, you know, what role does criticism have in your life? I mean, do they, do, is that a more of an embodied sort of uh, uh, mode of working? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, yeah, that, that moment was kind of an amazing moment where like we're looking up in the encyclopedia, right. About, um, about panic and, and, you know, she's reading and she says it comes from the god Pan. And and of course I had just 
gone to research myself and not been able to find had a very you know unsuccessful research trip at the library but have, had, had ended up reading um this play salome by oscar wilde which to me you know made a lot of sense to, for the weird state i was i was in and then she says you know pan was also the god of theatrical criticism and i was like oh my god <laughs> it's like it's like it's all coming together you know um but yeah criticism i mean that's something i've 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 done a lot and i, I I sort of fell in love with criticism, like at that age, at age 15, I started getting very interested in it um, because it, you know, what that scene is about is, it, you know, it's about a kind of, you know, looking at this kind of occult language, um, you know, this, these pagan myths and deciphering, you know, these, creating these these interpretations um uh that that or, or using those texts to try to illuminate um what i was going through and so um that and, and that process of looking at something very very closely and carefully um to the point where you're discovering shapes and outlines that aren't uh immediately apparent like what i, I there's this uh, poet named lee young lee who wants to find, he came and gave a talk at my university and he said, you know, close reading is about countering our projections and about seeing what's really there beyond our, our projections onto it. And I feel like that's what I try to do both in my critical writing, my academic writing, but also my creative writing, as in, you know, looking at panic here, which is to look at that experience of panic attack, to go back into that, that moment into those feelings and write about it as if I'd never heard, as I had not at that time heard of the term panic attack or knew about anxiety or dissociation or anything else and see what, see what the world looked like outside of those concepts. And I feel like there's, and my, my sort of gamble is always, there's always something more to be learned um, when we do that, right? That, that our, our ordinary concepts for things never quite exhaust everything that's there in reality and that there's always something to be learned and and i don't know whether that's always true or not but that's kind of the the hypothesis i have when i set out to write about something like panic or whether i you know write about a, a writer like oscar wilde so this is common but not necessarily true that someone who experiences panic attacks is more susceptible to substance abuse but you chose to end this memoir on a very powerful note. You know, maybe it's not positivity, but you end with this very strong statement. It feels like insight. It feels like insight. Did you always envision this memoir ending that way? Or did you want to avoid the trappings of the, conf like the confessional memoir genre? Or wh why did you choose to end like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, and and this is part of why the um, the larger narrative in which this piece is embedded is fictional as opposed to memoir, because yeah, I did not want to go the confessional route. I didn't want to go because I I I feel like it's it's often very difficult to avoid some of the tropes of that route, which can be very valuable. And in Whiteout, I was very happy with that the way that turned out. But with panic, I wanted to, I wanted to just look at something else, and I wanted to really. I'm very interested in the idea of states of mind or feelings or emotions 
or psychological states as being modes of thinking, as, as being perspectives from, and, and, and the question I wanted to ask was, what does the world look like from panic, right? From that, and what does that, what does panic show us about the world and about our minds? And one of the things it, it, it shows me is the kind of detachability of my consciousness, my awareness from my embodiment. And, and it, it creates this kind of vertigo in which the, the experience, the sort of key experience I describe in that piece about panic is looking at my body and saying, wow, this is a thing, you know what I mean? And, and just being like, this is such a weird, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, it's the kind of experience that it's really hard to talk about. And I wanted to really um, make it talk, make it speak and, 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 and look at the kinds of, you know, follow those insights. Uh, another way to put it is what would it, what would writing about anxiety look like if I try to treat it as a source of knowledge rather than a kind of experience to be gotten over? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, and, and again, I think it's it's more than like a resilience narrative necessarily that it yeah. is this totally different way of looking at the world because your mind is in this totally different space, which totally. is terrifying, but also it it, it, it can be, um, I don't know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't, it isn't necessarily destructive. You know, it's not a good or a bad feeling. It's a thing, right? Totally, totally, um, yeah. So, you know, this is with apologies uh, to Pope Francis. Uh, there is a lot in this piece that's touched on very lightly about your Catholic upbringing. You know, <laughs> schools strictly enforced rules, uh, for example, that just sort of general unfriendliness of the nuns. Do you mean to suggest some correlation between that environment and your panic attacks? Because again, it seems like if you are under suspicion for carrying a paper bag it seems like very like it seems like maybe not the best place for somebody who has these problems <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's it's that's a great question and it's it's interesting because i feel like it kind of works two ways on the on the one hand and here's the positive piece of it hmm. i feel like the catholic school environment going through that there um it it kind of led me to interpret these experiences in a spiritual lens, right? Mm. In, in a sense that something with a kind of spiritual significance is happening to me. Um, and it actually took a while for me to identify it as pathology, as opposed to I'm having a kind of spiritual, I'm learning something kind of horrifying about the world, but of course Catholicism is open to you learning, you know, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, about horror, you know. So, um, and I'm kind of grateful for that. I, I actually feel like the uh, the um, that Catholic environment, and, and again, I'm not I'm not necessarily you know I, I don't practice Catholicism today, but I am definitely grateful for the encouragement to interpret experiences with a spiritual dimension, which I feel like gave me something you know as a writer, but also as a person. Um, that a, a more fully materialist environment probably would not have led me to explore. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the negative piece of it, I think you 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 said well. You know, there 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 was kind of an atmosphere of uh, you know, I, just as an example, Catholic school, um, at least at that time, were not restrained by the kinds of uh, you know uh, 
uh, taboos on physical punishment that the public schools were were constrained by, right? So mm-hmm. there was there was a there was an atmosphere of um, of discipline and of not necessarily terror, but 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 something like terror, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that that um, that that added to that ambiance, right? And so I think I think both of those strands kind of wove themselves together in my in my experience. Yeah, and I mean. Finally, I'll let you go after this. I swear. Um, <laughs> this is so. This is so great. Um, but uh, you know, this this question of how we understand these experiences, these so these so called neurodivergent experiences. Do you feel like this? You know, will our understanding of them change as people? Perhaps you know, because as you note, it is it is kind of spreading like yeah. wildfire, it's intensifying. Um, do you feel like in the future, our understanding, understanding of it will perhaps be different as a, you know, as opposed to this thing that you're, you're suffering from, or this thing that you have to deal with, or an insight that there'll be something completely different. We understand these completely different as, you know, like thinking about panic attacks and like, uh, the 1800s, right? First right. of all, did people even experience panic attacks? Oh, yeah, totally. And secondly, would you, would you understand it, depending on which culture you were living in, would you understand it as a religious experience? Would you understand it as like the devil? Like what? Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? No, those are great questions. Yeah, and and um, absolutely, I think I think I, I hope that our, our 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 view of things is of of, of uh, uh, psychological states of neurodivergence is different in the future. Um, I mean, we don't under, I mean, I, I just feel like, you know, psychology is a great discipline, you know, um, uh, they're trying very hard, but like, there's so yeah. little we know. I mean, it's like incredible. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I feel for them because like their research methods are, are, you know, extremely constrained and, and, you know, compared to the natural sciences, they, they are, um, it, it's very difficult for them. Um, their studies are hard to replicate and they all, et cetera. But I feel like, you know, you know, we don't understand what consciousness is, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like no one really knows what that is. Like, like it's, it's a, it's a major uh, uh, conundrum. And, and so I feel like there's the possibility from where we are not right now that in 50 years, a hundred years, 20 years, 10 years, maybe we will have a totally different and transformed understanding of what this is. And that's not to say, it's not at all to, to, to try to sort of glorify these experiences are causes of suffering. They're, they're, they're very painful. They can lead to uh, uh, self-harm and all kinds of horrible things. And certainly, the, you know, we, we want to find ways of treating people um, and helping people. But in terms of helping us understand what these experiences show, where they come from, what they reveal about ourselves in the world, I feel like th- there's so much more to learn about them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. This is uh, uh, always, always, you've always got such fabulous questions. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.